Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Welcome. Um, this is the very first podcast that we're recording in two separate cities at the same time. Which is, the, that's the marvel of technology. It is. Seth is, is on my computer screen. And, and David is on mine. It's, uh, it's not as book- nice as having you right next to me. I, I see his admit. bookshelves. He sees my ductwork in your my duct basement. in your basement. <laughs> where I was, I was there just uh, like last week. Yeah. In your basement. But uh, anyway, we're going to continue talking through the book of Numbers. Uh, we've just looked at um, the story of Balaam and uh, his his trying to curse the people of Israel, but being w- w- restrained and instead blessing them for cursing. God intends for blessing. Yep. And yep. then we uh, and then we looked at the final rebellion of the uh, old generation, and we looked at uh, Phineas and uh, how he was the oh, uh, consummate Phineas. priest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, and then we uh, we kind of looked at some of the, the strange laws there at the end of that section with the daughter with the five daughters of uh, what was the name Zelophehad or something Zelophehad and it was yeah. like it was the way in which that these laws were the way that God's promises would continue to new generations and right particular one was how it would continue if you had no male heirs like mm-hmm. would the line continue yes it will property will pass to the daughters right and so. Now, I think something we else else we didn't really mention at the end of last um, episode is, you know, Israel was already talking about how they were going to divide up the land and what land rights would be and all this stuff before they even entered the land. And so okay. this was supposed to be um, kind of a show of faith, whereas the older generation on the border of the land, they were afraid to even go in. The younger generation, they're like already counting their before. they're counting their eggs before they're counting their chickens before they're hatched, you know, kind like of thing. In faith, yeah, <laughs> yeah, in faith, like they're like, oh, that land that we'll definitely get. Uh, how are we going to divide that up? You know, and so That's here fine. we're looking forward. So that that's supposed to cast our vision forward to the promised land, to when they're going to enter into it, and yep. so uh, we kind of get some regulations now about some... uh, feasts and festivals. And yeah. the, and Israel's calendar that are supposed to guide them wa- once they enter the land. Yeah, it, it should make sense. Like as the old generation was about to enter into the promised land, God came down on Mount Sinai and gave them the Torah for the first time. As they're about to go into the promised land, the new generation they're kind of re-given all the laws again. Except this time, it's not like all the laws, the Ten Commandments aren't given again. It's really just their sacred calendar. It's how they're mm-hmm. supposed to structure their time. So there's daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, which is weekly offerings, monthly offerings, and then there are festivals throughout the year. So the next two chapters are all about how Israel, once they get into the promised land, are supposed to remember the way that God has provided for them in the wilderness and in Egypt. That's right. And so what this whole section's about. I think I think that you 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 made a really good parallelism there 
with the old generation getting commands, this new generation getting commands, and there's something really important happening here with the old and new generation. So the old generation, if we remember at the very beginning of Numbers, there's all these chapters that we walked through that laid out kind of holy space for Israel. You had the tabernacle in the middle, and then you had the ring of priests around that, and then you had right. the tribes of Israel around that, and you had the, the rabble kind of around the, the end. And uh, the whole idea there was to be, as we travel through the wilderness, let's remember the centrality of Yahweh um, to our distinctiveness God wants and to, to live who with we are as people. people. And he, right. he, in the center of the camp, kind of controls everything. He lives yes. with us. Yeah. Right. And so now, but, but the question becomes, once we enter into Israel and have this new promised land, we all inhabit these different corners of this land. We're more spread out and we're not as close to the, the temple as we used to be. How, how are we to orient ourselves around Yahweh? Well, no longer is it going to be organized around holy space. Instead, now we have the organization around holy time. But I mean, Israel, I mean, Jerusalem would end up becoming like the de facto center of the country, right? Absolutely like, right. I, I, I guess, like... I guess the, the, the way to word it is not instead it's in addition to okay, it's not so. not instead of holy time or instead of holy space it's holy time it's but like what's now in addition to holy space in the holy wilderness time. like you were always within walking distance of the temple yeah like, you know like you were a day's like half half an hour an hour journey to right. the temple and your and your and your very coordinates within israel are tied to how they are related to god in the center if you live right. on the north side of the camp it's because the temple you is south in, of you, right? Right, 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 right. Like, yeah, and so and like so you're always oriented around it. Like, uh, what, what's the word? Like immigrating. They're going to be like planting, prospecting. Uh-huh. They're going to be on the frontiers of some land, and right. there's not the primary. Um, what, what, what did you just say? Like the primary way that they locate themselves is not right. going to be around Orient the themselves. temple. Yep. Is going to be around like the farmland or the geography. Yep. And so, how do you live like that? Well. You have a special emphasis on holy time, like right? Weekly, and, and like we daily, should, monthly. right? And we should say like these these moments of holy time and festivals and feasts call people back to the temple, the holy space, right? To do these things. Yeah. Uh, so it's not it's it really isn't meant to be put to put them at odds with one another. But there is this also cool thing that you you pointed out that is that is really neat here. So in the holy space, you had the tabernacle, the center, then the priest, then the people. So there's like these concentric circles of holiness, we've called it in past episodes. Yeah. Here, you even mentioned there's like what to do during the day, the week, the months, the years. So it kind of also has these concentric circles of holiness around your calendar yep. where it starts small in the center, but then, you know, grows out in these like ripple effect rings that take over your whole calendar. And what's so, as you're reading this, what you should realize too is that these are compounding. So, we, they're compounding and they're comprehensive. So, scattered throughout the Torah so far, there had been made mention of certain types of sacrifices or rituals that you're supposed to do, but often they were like left unsaid. So, uh, Numbers 28 starts with these daily offerings. And in, in, in Exodus 9, 29, uh, God makes mention to Moses of daily offerings, but doesn't describe what they are and just tells him that he should do them. So here for the first time, you get a detailed list of what all those daily offerings should be. Mm. So you have this sense that the author of Numbers is compiling all the different um, sacrifices that have been listed throughout the Torah and compiling them together for the new generation so that when they go into the land, they have a like a like a what a cheat sheet of everything that they're supposed to do so they know that they won't forget and they don't have to reference you know the whole story to get them all does that make sense 
Yeah, that does make sense. I, I'm. I think the question I'm asking as you're as you're saying that is, uh, why, like, why have this cheat sheet at the end? Like, why not just, hey man, just read the Bible. You know, <laughs> just read your Torah. You'll get it all eventually. Is well, there I... is there like a significance to this final moment before entering the land of giving them all these these like this consummate commandments? Like, is there something happening here? Well, I mean, one, I think it's if you. I'm assuming that there's like a high, like Phineas is a great example. Yeah. They, this new generation wants to be obedient and they're zealous for obedience. Mm. And so like if anybody is zealous for good works, we want to be obedient to the Lord. They would often probably find ways to like, soli- like to not canonize, but to like solidify what's expected of them. So like if I know what's expected of me broadly, but and my kids know it's expected of them broadly as members of my family, but we still have a chore chart that they refer to because right. it's helpful for the purposes of obedience. So right. you have hundreds of sacrifices mentioned throughout the Torah. So you have one specific space right here where you have this new generation who wants to be obedient, and it's compiled for them to be so. And it's a comprehensive list. Nowhere, nowhere else in the Torah has a comprehensive list of the sacrifices needed daily, weekly, monthly, and per festival been laid out yet. So I think like those are okay. what's happening. I think that's helpful. I think that the idea of, of saying like these people were zealous for obedience and therefore God gave them what they ultimately wanted, which was tell us how to obey. Tell us how to not fall into the sins of our fathers. We want to orient ourselves around you. Help us do that. And God's like, here it is all in one. Um, so let, before we move on to some other things in this text, uh, let's talk a little bit more about holy time and why festivals, why feasts, why daily, monthly, weekly, yearly rhythms. What is it about these um this holy calendar that was so important to God. I mean, it was established even in like the order of creation, like God rested on the seventh and then now we rest on the seventh right. in the Sabbath. So like, like when you think about holy time, what do you think? About? I think, I think, I mean, primarily about remembrance, mm-hmm. like Israel's proven that they are a people that forget. <laughs> like yeah. that's definitely, like, yeah, they're, definitely. Yep. They're, they're people that forget what God has done for them. And so God has instituted in the way that they live their life reminders like weekly daily reminders monthly reminders of how god has provided for them and how he continues to provide for them in in the camp so i think they're like one way that god shows mercy to israel they're his way of like continuing to like habituate the story of their rescue and redemption by his hand like in the sacrifices in the provision for their sins or whatever else it's a way that um god is a providing it's, Mm -hmm. it's a does that make sense? Like God is providing a way sense. of mercy, think, yeah, like regularly yeah, yep. to remind them of what He's capable of and what ha- He has done. Yeah, and what He has done definitely. Because I mean, if you look at some of these feasts, I mean, like you know, the Feast of Booths is supposed to remind them about the time that they lived in booths or little tents around right. Mount Sinai. It's supposed to re- remind them of Mount Sinai. The Passover is supposed to remind them of the Passover whenever God yeah. spared them in Egypt. Like the Sabbath is supposed to remind them of the cre- of creation, of creation, God, how God, God is works. in control. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Uh, so I think that all makes sense. And like, let's kind of let's jump because I want to I want to close this holy time loop a bit so we can talk about other things. So let's let's talk about holy time in, in the Christian world and like how have how has how has some of these things continued um in the early church and extended to today. I mean, the Lord's Supper is probably mm-hmm. the number one thing to think about here. Yeah. When we talk about holy time, as often as you meet 
you know, we break bread. We rem- and remember this thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, I mean, Christmas, Easter, yep. like these are regular celebrations. If you come from a more liturgical church, you have, you know, Eventide, <laughs> Advent. You, you have like whole, like the whole year is it in a particular season of the Christian life. You're yeah. celebrating the Ascension. You're celebrating Lenten. You're celebrating uh, either mourning, lamenting, feasting, fasting. Like you're trying to engage the story of the Bible, not just with your mind, but with your body and your emotions and your ha- like your uh, habits of your heart and like yeah. even your belly, like when you right. like fast. Like yeah, it's when you a, fast, yeah. Oh, like maybe that's another way to talk about like the purpose of sacred time is to like incarnate your obedience to the Lord. It's not just mm. mental ascent. It's mm. actually like you are incarnating your obedience by living your life according to a certain rhythm. And so that's yeah. the purpose of sacred time. Yeah, I really like that. And I think you've hit on something in both Old and New Covenants, so both here in Numbers and now in our present day, is the idea of remembrance. You know, like even Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And, you know, now, you know, and you said in Numbers, the feasts were there to help people remember what the Lord had done. And we're about to turn the page here in a few chapters to Deuteronomy, where one of the key words throughout that whole book is remember. Because if you remember what God has done, if you look back at what he's done, this will cause you to love him because of what he's done for you. It will create love in your heart. And if you have love in your heart for the Lord, you will obey his commands. And so how does, how does God get us to obey his commands? He causes us to remember his faithfulness and his yeah. goodness. And so that's how he leads from one to the other. And so I think for us as Christians today, when we talk about, you know, how do I live more like Christ? How do I uh, live a more Christ-like life? How do I fight sin? How do I be holy? How, you know, all the, how do I be the person God wants me to be? However you want to turn that phrase, you know, uh, more culturally relevant or not. <laughs> and uh, right. And I think the answer is like, okay, let's look at the Lord's Supper. Let's look at Jesus's call to remember him. Let's look at numbers. And what is God doing here? He's saying, remember me, meditate on what I have done in the past. And for us as Christians, that is consummated in the death of Jesus and his resurrection and hope in his eventual return. And that will reorient your life around me. So there is a way that we can kind of enter into the camp of Israel in a sense and put God's presence at the center of our life by rehearsing holy time. Right. That's exactly right. I think, I think the, I think, I mean, I think I've, I've been reading You Are What You Love by James K. Smith right now. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how we lose a lot of the intended um, force behind the Bible when we simply remember mentally and we don't remember like physically with our bodies. That's why communion is not just a moment in the service where we just pause and think about Christ's death and resurrection, but we actually eat something and we drink something. Like we're reliving a moment, not just with our minds, but with our bodies. I think that's what 28 and 29 are showing us. Like there is like a rhythm that needs to be obeyed in our, in our lives. It's not just a thinking thing, but it's a feeling, doing, embodied, loving thing. Yeah, which I think should also point us at least briefly, and even even if it is even this is on the periphery, it still should be mentioned. Is this should point us to the value of the incarnation? That God didn't just love us with His mind, right? Right. He incarnated His love. Right. Right. Exactly. He came and actually had nerve endings, and actually had an empty stomach, and actually got thirsty, and actually drank wine, and actually went to the cross, and actually. Laid hands on people and actually washed feet. Like it was yeah, in, he, incarnated love. Yes, and I think yeah. um, one of the, the unique things about Christianity is that Jesus, actually the God who is invisible, 
not only is incarnated, and a lot of religions will say that's an impossibility. Right, or even more, a blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, exactly right. Or the fact that Jesus like showed himself publicly and like opened himself to being debated like that. Like he's a falsifiable mm. God. Most other right. religions have people like coming, like the, the divine being coming to you in private revelation, like, you know, Joseph Smith staring into his hat or uh, the Hindu Vedas being downloaded to somebody. Like we have God who actually comes and is publicly available to us in his body. You can stick your fingers through his, the nails in his hands. Like no other religion has that type of public falsifiable mm. aspect to it. It's only all, Christianity has that, that embodied incarnate vision for what it means to be human and divine and to be saved. So we just finished talking about why the idea of ritual and rhythm in your calendar is good news, like incarnated bodily rules are good news. But before we move on to vows, we want to talk a little bit about Genesis 1 and how this is a fulfillment of the creation mandate. Yeah, so... There's some interesting things that we should be like clued into here that, that are happening that should kind of remind us of the days of creation. So you, you have morning and evening feasts, or sacrifices, I should say. Like, these are the sacrifices for the morning. These are the sacrifices for the evening, which mirror those, the sorry? language in Genesis 1. Uh, let's see here. It's under the daily they, sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's right, yeah. Every single day you're supposed to offer sacrifices, not just in the morning, but in the evening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the, I, I can just find this one here in verse 8. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, which is like the, the opposite right. of the one that's offered in the morning. Yep. And so it's like, it's kind of following that pattern of there was morning and there was evening the first day, you know, and there's that kind of rhythm to the sacrifices that follow the rhythm of the days of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, then Sabbath offerings follow next. After morning and evening, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 28, in verse 9, you have the Sabbath, which after all yeah. the days of creation of morning and evening, you have God rest on the Sabbath, and now we're told to rest on the Sabbath. Um, and then the monthly um, and yearly offerings follow often the lunar calendar or the solar calendar yeah. for the days of the year, which God put in place in day four. And so there, there's okay. this... So what, what's happening here is like... The, the author is like restructuring their their religious calendar after the the providential calendar of God as he like recreate when he, when he created the world. Yes. And, That's and cool. I think there's a really special reason for that. And I think it's just to show that there is something restorative or creative or generative uh, uh, about living in God's holy time. That when we orient ourselves around Yahweh, when we, when we put him at the center and, and we follow these rhythms that he wants us to follow, when we remember what he's done in our past, we end up, creating new creation around us which is it doesn't just remember or point us back to, to creation but it actually yes. brings about new creation in That's this right. exact moment yep. this, is, this is one of the ways that israel is a light to the nations that israel is a blessing to the nations that she that she is a priest to the nations uh and so like as she orients herself around god's time instead of man's time she brings god's rule reign and creation onto the world which And I think then it's fascinating that these days of creation, like this creational rhythms, are marked by sacrifices because Jesus, 
literally identifies himself as each one of those at some point in his ministry. Mm-hmm. He's the fulfillment of all the different feasts, and he does that throughout the book of John and Mark right. and Matthew. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath who is sacrificed for us. He even talks about how uh, he's the firstborn of all creation, and by him and through him were all things made. And the way that that's remembered even in the Old Testament is through sacrificing lambs, of which mm-hmm. Jesus is the the final lamb, right? right. Like, yes. like how does new creation come out when we live in God's time? Mm-hmm. But when Jesus lives in God's time as well and dies the, as each one of those sacrifices, the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the right. festival. So lambs. how will we, how will we be new creators in the world around us? How will we bring God's creation and restorative nature to the, to the world in which we live by remembering Christ's death? and his resurrection by rehearsing the gospel, by remembering the sacrifices, we will live our lives in such a way that we impact the world around us with the gospel of Jesus. And as we like reorient our lives and our calendars around Jesus's life and his calendar, we join him in that recreating work just like Israel did. Like the liturgies of our life, like the patterns and the rhythms of how we structure our day can bring new life to our world as they're patterned after Jesus. Yeah, so I love that. I just wanted to like mention it, and it was one extra cool little connection really that cool. I saw a I like commentator that. bring up. I so, like that. Um, okay, but then before we close out this section, uh, because right after we have one more section of law, basically, before we get back into narrative, which uh, with uh, I think it's a, a war that takes place, uh, the, the vengeance, vengeance on Midian. On Midian yeah. yeah. So uh, there's this section on vows now. So we've talked about festivals and feasts, and now we get a section on vows. And thoughts on why why this is here, what it's doing here, maybe an well, overview of it. Well, it's the same pattern in Leviticus. Like Leviticus has a whole bunch of laws that dictate the way that you're supposed to sacrifice, then it ends right as they're about to enter into God's presence with a section on vows. So I wondered who was just pattering after Leviticus, but also textually it says, uh, it, it like prepares us to expect that. I think back in Numbers 28, it talks about the vows that you bring to the Lord. So this is that comprehensive list of how like, or a, an ending of like how you make vows to the Lord. So potentially okay. that's why. Yeah. I think another thing, and I didn't think about this until a comment you made earlier about um, the younger generation's zeal for obedience Mm-hmm. You know, I think we talked about in the last vow section that people might be a little overzealous in the in a bad way about like God has said you're not going to enter the land. You know, you're you know I, I I've already passed this judgment on you, and so the people might be thinking, well, I'll just make some vows and that'll overcome God's judgment. And he's like, no, don't make rash vows. Right. And here it's kind of a similar thing, but in a more holy way. Oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. They're like you they guys wanted- are zealous for obedience. You guys want to yeah. obey. Phineas has got you all pumped up. Uh, now, when you make vows, be careful, like because right. I'm going to hold you to them. Yes, and I think probably I think that's a good general point to be made. But I mm. think the text actually probably gives a little more information because okay. the whole thing is not about vows in general; it's about women and yeah. making vows, right? Which, which is, is like kind of a theme that's being developed with the daughters of Zelophehad, yeah, and now again exactly an right. emphasis on women. Which is really cool too, just like especially in the ancient Near East in this world, they, they you would not have provision for women in laws. And now we're getting two huge discourses on them back to back. Right. And so the first time I read through this, I was like, oh, why can't a woman make a vow on her own? Which was kind of like the way that I kept reading it because... Oh, I understand. Verse 6, if she marries a husband while... Uh, while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears her say it and says nothing, 
then it stands. So why is it that a woman's vow is always dependent on either her husband or her father's like approval of it? So that's what the first thing that came to my mind. But the second thing that I re- realized was that um, in verse 16, it says, These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. So I realized, like, probably a lot of times these w- girls are very, very young. Very young. So, like, when we talk about women in father's houses, that's not just, like, grown women. These are children. Right. So, like, you have children who are trying to obey the commands of the Lord, and they make rash vows. Mm-hmm. And the father is supposed to say, no, 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 that's not the way that we... We don't make vows thoughtlessly. Yeah. He's supposed to train his daughter and not like let her like ruin her life by a rash vow. So like, yeah. I think there's a fatherly protective element in that first one. And then on the second one, the husband one, I think what's happening here is that spouses are always supposed to be dependent upon one another. And this is less about the woman being not allowed to, but the man abdicating his responsibility. Mm. Because I think this whole thing is supposed to, we keep talking about the fact that these calendar rhythms are supposed to recreate Eden, like bring about new creation. What happened in the Garden of Eden? The man sat by idly as the woman ate the fruit. And here you have a situation where men have the opportunity to sit by idly while their wife or their daughter makes a rash decision and does nothing. Mm. And the law is directly addressing, no, you must say something in order to stop that foolishness. You're about to go back in the Garden of Eden? Yeah. Don't recreate the sin of your forefather, Adam. Oh, right. Yeah, because like, the Canaan is the new Garden of Eden. That's exactly that's right. Yeah, wow. Right. Okay. So you can't do what your father did. You need to be new Adams. You need to be mm. better than Adam. You need to not, You need to be co like be in a relationship with your spouse, relationship with your daughter, where you can call them out on that and make sure that you do not take vows rashly. And we talked about this all the way back in the beginning. Like the purpose of vows was to like make God do something for to, for you, right? And like the part of the yeah, like, reason yeah, why they're discouraged. Yeah, you're petitioning him, trying to get him to do something special for you. But part of the reason this is discouraged both here and elsewhere is because God has already given you everything. He's giving you a new Eden. What more do you need from him? So it's like you don't need to make extra vows when God's already told you how you can receive his blessings. Mm, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think that's really good. Um, and this is like a strange kind of patriarchal-seeming text. And so um, I think that's a helpful distinction or, or not distinction, but comparison to make with Genesis three and the abdication of, um, our one anotherness, even, you know, not even male, female, but just like Adam and yeah. Eve were a partnership. You Submit know, they, to one another out of, yeah. rever- out of reverence for Christ. Yeah. yeah and, and so, um, I think that's really cool. Um, I mean, there, is there anything else in here indigenous to numbers 30 that you really want to talk about? Because there is some really blatant like ways to see Jesus in this text that I, I was, was dying just, to get to. I was just about <laughs> to get there. Go. <laughs> well, so I was looking at verse four. I'm just going to read verse 13, 14 and 15. Cause I think Great. these are really part of the heart of how, if you were going to be reading this for yourself and seeing Jesus, I think this is kind of the heart of it. So it says any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish. So the husband can ratify it. Um, or her husband may make it void by saying nothing or, uh, but or by saying something but if her husband says nothing to her from day to day then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her he has established them because he has said nothing to her on the day that he heard them but if he makes them null and void after he heard them then he 
shall bear her iniquity. Yeah, I love this text, especially that last line that says, he shall bear her iniquity, because that just sounds so much like Jesus. So we kind of want to take this all in and say, what's happening? If you happening? ever hear the phrase, bear their iniquity, <laughs> yeah, it's like, just right? circle it. Like, this is probably your Jesus turn in the yes. passage. <laughs> and so let, let's look at what's happening here and what Seth just read. So um, there's this woman that comes, she makes a vow, and it could be a rash vow, um, and uh, th- her husband ends up saying nothing. And therefore, the, ra- the vow is ratified. Uh, she is bound by it. And if she breaks that vow, she must bear her own iniquity. She is right. responsible uh, for the fact that she breaks that vow if she made it and the husband says nothing. But if the husband wants to come and, and say, I want to free her from the responsibility of that vow, then the husband has to bear the iniquity himself instead Got of the it. bride. Right. And so in order to free the bride from her vow... The husband has to come and bear the iniquity himself Yeah, if the husband wants to. And so, I mean, oh, there's a couple other things to talk about here, but it, very generally, what, what happens is Jesus comes and we, are, we, 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 we have failed miserably and we should be bearing our own iniquity. But instead, Jesus comes and frees us yeah. by bearing the iniquity uh, that we deserve. But there's it's some like, things happening here too about... It's like, like Jesus is doing both both things. It's like yes, we're exactly. sinning, we're, we're like thoughtlessly making vows, thoughtlessly try, trying to get God to do something for us. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus says nothing. He allows us to continue in our path to sin. Like Romans says, like he bears patiently with mm-hmm. us and he allows us to experience the consequences of our rash decision-making. But just like the law says right here, he also bears our iniquity. Mm-hmm. So like in so in that same space where Jesus is like justifying us, Jesus also makes null and void the rash vows by bearing the weight of our sin on himself. He speaks a better word than our rash vows. He speaks a better promise and he redeems us. He buys us back from that. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, this is what I love about Christ-centered reading of scripture because you're able to approach a text like this and you would you would either have to go this is a weird text that has nothing to do with me right <laughs> right or you're like or you could really try to be like okay what's the principle behind the text that you know like the truth that's there that's timeless you know cuz we don't make vows anymore you know most people yeah. uh or you can understand what it was in its original context and what God was trying to do and then say, how has he done this more fully in Jesus? And you get this beautiful picture yeah. of the fact that we've been make, we've been sinning, making rash vows of like, hey, I'm good enough and I could be judged based on my own merit. You know, like, just try me. And we right. try all these things and God's like, okay, just, yep, I'll let you, I'll let you. And then, but instead of just letting us, you know, just get stuck in that. He enters in and you can nullifies kind of see, our rash and nullifies vows. it. I, I mean, I kind of like this this mental picture of like of the of the of the husband like busting into the temple and being like, "I want to nullify my <laughs> wife's vow." And like, you know what that means, right? You know, like anyway, but it's right, like, right. This no, is it's, what Jesus does for us. Or on the so other bad. side of that, it's like we are people that make rash vows, but we're also people who abdicate our responsibility and don't intervene when we should. Oh, we don't yeah. just make bash vows we also don't do what we ought so like Mm -hmm. we and the lord like comes to us too and he calls us to action he calls us to like live our lives in a pattern like we just read in 28 and 29 and he also dies for our sins as well he also bears that iniquity the bears the iniquity of adam so that we can like be new adams and new eves towards one another Yeah. yeah i love that it's like uh he he's he's not only our like new and better husband you know who we're the bride who made a rash vow and he comes and saves us we're also 
a bad husband who abdicated our responsibility, who doesn't speak up for injustice. He comes you know. as the better wife, as the bride, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I don't yeah. know. But he comes as the better, weird, like, yeah, but right, he, right. He, like, he also re replaces our role, yes. you know, and is like, That's I exactly can do it right. for you. You know, yeah. uh, not only on behalf of you, but I can also do it for you. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's so cool. Uh, I love that. Uh, but so anyway. whether you're a husband who's abdicating his responsibility, <laughs> right. Or anybody, not just a wife, who's rashly making promises to try to get God to do something for you. You can rest that Jesus makes null and void our best attempts at righteousness. He bears our iniquity and gives us what we most desire, himself. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to creating free, gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. So to join us in our mission and view our resources, we invite you to visit SpokenGospel.com. Mm -hmm.